Hello, anybody there? Hello, Jamie. How are you? It's Maria. Hi, Maria. Good morning. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Just doing a quick test here to make sure that I can uh, get these levels ready to go. Excellent. There There we are. Oh, hey. Excellent. I'm so happy. I the most nerve wracking part for me is actually getting on and making sure that I can hear. hear (laughs) It's always it's always a bit terrifying, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> it is. And I'm just not the best at tech. You know, put me in front of three or 400 people. No problem. You're good. Have me press buttons and test mics. <laughs> I'm like hyperventilating. <laughs> well, we uh, we sure have it easy these days. I know that uh, back in the day, it used to be a, a bigger production, right? To, ha- to have to get something of quality. Uh, but uh, it looks like I'm good to go here. So uh, if you're all right, do you mind if we get the ball rolling? Yeah, let's do it. Excellent. First of all, I want to thank you for your time for uh, stopping by and and sharing a couple of thoughts about your latest work and and some of your life story. I am really excited to talk to you because there's so many things that intrigue me about your life, in particular, your work as a as a broadcaster and and nonprofit work and and this really important family story that you want to tell. And uh, I guess since there's so many places to begin I'd like to ask you if we can start with your origin in particular, and what was it sure. like growing up? If you can remember uh, those uh, those moments when when you were just a young kid and dad was coming home from work. Yeah, absolutely, love that. So you know, thank you again, Jamie, for having me. I know that this has been a long time coming. We've <laughs> yeah. been in contact for years, and yeah. I keep on saying, "Not yet, not yet, not yet." And you know, that's just how publishing works. It's you never know; nothing happens until something does, right? Absolutely. So, <laughs> I appreciate your patience, and I appreciate you giving me this opportunity to tell a little bit of my story. So, anyways, my name is Maria Costanzo Palmer. I'm from a very small suburb in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It's called McKee's Rocks, PA. And nobody knew about that particular city until um, this past fall, whenever DeMar Hamlin had his tragic uh, cardiac arrest. He was the Buffalo Bill that uh, passed out on the field. And he is actually from McKee's Rocks. So he uh, put the city on the map per se. Uh, Nobody had ever heard of it before, but a little bit about me. Um, I grew up in Pittsburgh and um, I grew up, Pittsburgh is a very interesting city. I don't know if you've been at all or heard about it, but it's one of those places that was booming during the steel mill industry, right? So you had these loads of different immigrants that were coming into the city and making lives for themselves and their families. And my family was no exception to that. Um, I come from an Italian background and my great-grandfather came over to work in the steel mill industry. And the thing is, is when people came over, they found other people in their neighborhoods um, where they ended up you know, living and settling. And so the funny thing about um, the McKees Rocks and surrounding areas is um, years ago, a friend of mine from high school went back to Italy and he went to Calabria, which is where a lot of people in uh, my immediate area are from. And he went to this little town called uh, Catanzara and he was at the library and he ended up meeting the mayor because it's just a very small place. (laughs) And so the mayor immediately recognized that he was not from the area, right? Like he kind of stuck out like a sore thumb being American. And so he asked him, you know, where are you from? He said, oh, I'm actually from the United States. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And he said, well, I know a little bit about the United States because I go there every year. And I fly into Pittsburgh, but I actually go to this little place called McKee's Rocks, Pennsylvania. (laughs) He said, yeah, that's where I'm from. And so he was, they were looking over records and all of the people that we went to high school with, the same last names, they're all (laughs) from that little town. So that's kind of how the town emerged. And, you know, it was just a very 
quaint place back in the 50s and 60s. And then as the steel mill industry started to move out and the jobs started to move out, uh, the people kind of left with it uh, to go to different suburbs and areas that were, you know, a little bit more uh, affluent, I would say. And so whenever my father started the restaurant, he was looking to get into the restaurant business. He was a postal worker, so he didn't really have a ton of money saved from, you know, family of immigrants. And, you know, we were not familiar with that area and it was what he could afford at the time. Mm. So he went into McKee's Rocks. He bought this failing restaurant that was already existing. It was an Italian restaurant, which is what his dream was. But, you know, imagine buying a restaurant where your fate already doesn't look great, right? You're going to this <laughs> place that nobody knows um, of, and you're buying a business in an area that's really on a decline. And you're buying the same exact business that you're hoping to build up and it's failing in that location. So essentially my dad just never really gave up on the dream and he was working two jobs. He would work during the day, he would do his oh, postal man. route and yeah. at night, right? At night he would work at the restaurant. And so as a child, to kind of get back to your first question, my um, early memories of the restaurant were kind of interesting, very much twofold, right? It was a very magical upbringing when you grow up in a restaurant because think of all the things the kids do whenever they're little to make believe, right? We have all of these like <laughs> plastic kitchenettes and, you know, kids, I don't know if you have children yourself or nieces and nephews, but, you know, they're always making you something like all, all this plastic <laughs> food. It's going in like the plastic pan and they're grilling and they're doing all this stuff. So imagine growing up where like you had a life-size version of that. So um, many times growing up, I would be playing make-believe and I would be behind the bar, like serving my stuffed animals. You know, I thought that the, um, I know everybody calls it soda, but we in Pittsburgh call it pop. The, um, <laughs> the gun that you use uh, to make drinks and stuff, that was like the coolest thing for a little kid, right? I would, you know, press every button and like all of my stuffed animals had these really complicated drinks that came out this like murky, <laughs> disgusting mess of like sugar. Um, but it was super cool. And, you know, I was able to pretend on our point of sale system that I was a server and I was putting in orders. And I was also able to help my parents too, you know, just by filling up ketchups and salt and peppers and mm -hmm. all of the sugar packets that you use for iced tea and everything. Like that was really my job whenever I was four years old. So yeah. there's really never been a time <laughs> in my life that I haven't worked, but I also didn't really realize any other different way. Right. So, yeah. you know, I would kind of describe my childhood as a bit magical and mm -hmm. um, very unique. It was not, you know, the average um, kind of nine to five situation with my parents, especially we didn't see a ton of my dad unless we were at the restaurant, because when you're starting a business and you're trying to make it go, you got to be there. Right. And so for him, it was a labor of love and it was a commitment. And I, you know, the other side of it is it was for a long time, kind of the annoying little brother that I never had. So mm -hmm. there was a lot of jealousy, you know, because mm -hmm. um, it took my dad away from our family because he was trying to make a better life for us. Um, and, you know, really trying to make it in this industry that the odds are not with you at all whenever you go into the restaurant industry and especially now i mean most restaurants mm -hmm. it's a pretty high percentage um you know don't quote me but i it it's definitely like well over 50 it might even be like in the 80 yeah. percent of all restaurants really you know only managed to stay open just a couple of years and we were open for 18 and really mm. we kind of like had a quick force closure um, or else we probably would still be open today. So um, he put his heart and soul into it. And honestly, I tell people all the time, you know, cause I'm, as you had said earlier, I do have a background in, um, you know, lots of media training and broadcasting from Syracuse university and some of my jobs, but people say, you know, where did you, where did you learn the most in your life? And it's not whenever I went to Syracuse, it's not my graduate degree from Pepperdine. It's honestly like working in my dad's restaurant and working with the public mm -hmm. and 
listening to people's stories because everybody that came through his door and we estimate over the the 18 years that he was in business about a little over a million customers came oh, through man. our door. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was the spot. It was the spot. But everybody that came through, they had a different agenda, you know, and some of the agendas were fantastic. You know, they were celebrating these really beautiful milestones with us. And, you know, we became the first to know about people's engagements and we became, you know, the first shoulder to cry on whenever somebody's mother passed away and they wanted to um, do the um, celebration of life dinner with us. You know, we became really the conduit, you know, sometimes as servers, right? You're looking into people's lives and they don't realize, they just sort of see you as a fixture. But you are a person. And so, you know, I was realizing if somebody was having a really bad day at work, um, I knew about it. If somebody was having marital problems, like we knew about it. I mean, we didn't mm-hmm. go and blab it to everybody, <laughs> but you get this like very interesting perspective, Jamie, that's so unique. Um, it's something that I don't think a lot of people can relate to necessarily. I mean, maybe unless your family, you grew up in a family owned business, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a very, I, I it's feel incredibly so tight blessed. knit, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Organically. And, and I feel so blessed that I was able to have that layer of me because now no matter what I do, I mean, when you work in the restaurant industry, there's a lot of chaos, right? Like, <laughs> you know, things drop, people are yelling and screaming and like the kitchen's always crazy. It's like 5,000 degrees in there. And, you know, we didn't take any reservations. So people sometimes would wait two and three hours to eat at the restaurant, wow. line up like all the way out the door. So it was always fast paced. You never really had a lot of time to think. And, you know, sometimes you as a server, you're really the first impression of the restaurant. So you're trying to, especially if people have been waiting for a really long time and they're cranky and they're a little hangry, like you're trying to kick off their experience to be the best possible. So for me, I can really go anywhere or do anything. Like people call me at the last minute. My my youngest child, she had a talent show on Friday <laughs> um, for her elementary school, right? And the two women that were running the talent show are very, very dear friends of mine. And, you know, clearly just like most people, lots of stage fright, right? There were mm-hmm. going to be hundreds of people there. And neither one of them really had any interest in being the MC, but they knew that they could call me like the last minute. (laughs) Do you think that you could be the MC for this event? I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. You know, like I, you're ready. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, it doesn't bother me because I'm just going to come there. I'm just going to be me. I know how to be me because I've had years of training and being me working in the restaurant and Mm -hmm. and that's what I'm going to bring. And so I think my childhood in a way, I just feel so blessed because I don't think a lot of people get that type of experience growing up, you know, and it was hard work and, you know, it wasn't all fun and games. It was late nights. It was intense. Um, Mm -hmm. Like I said, we didn't have, it's not the type of job where it's a nine to five or you can take a nice Mm -hmm. little break. And, you know, it was constant. As soon as the doors open at, you know, 3.30 3.30 or so. And we started to eat at four. And then it went all the way until somebody came in at 11 PM. We were serving them, oh, even man. though we the kitchen closed down. So sometimes we weren't done with the kitchen until like 12.30, one in the morning. The bar oh. went till two. And then you get up and you do it all over again. Right. One day off just on Sundays. So, you know, it was a very unique, um, but incredibly wonderful and blessed childhood. That's how I would describe my childhood. And I'm glad you were so thorough about the environment because I think it speaks so much to, to what we take in and what we perceive when we're younger, but your parents must've been phenomenal people. I mean, just reading the excerpt that you sent my way from, uh, from the award that you folks won. Uh, congrats on that, by the way. Um, oh, thank you so much. There's, thank you so much. There's just a lot of care into getting into your parents' mind, into in particular your your dad, who's the protagonist, who seems such a, a delightful, larger than life figure, but at the same time is making a really, really big choice. And the way that you framed the the beginning of that sample uh, was 
really striking to me because you felt like we're going to be rooting for this guy no matter what, but at the same time, there's going to be some things that are that may come back and and cause a lot of hurt. That may mm-hmm. so, uh, maybe a, a rational person might say this may not be the best thing for a family. And uh, mm-hmm. obviously, I want to talk about that. Um, actually, let's talk about that because I wanted to ask you some yeah. work work stuff, you know. Uh, but let, yeah, let's, let's go there. Let's do it. Yeah. And, you know, my dad always says, and I think this is the quote that's going to be sort of leading off the book. And of course, I'm going to get it wrong because I'm not reading it. But, (laughs) you know, this is what we do on the radio, right? We just kind of ad lib. But he always says that the key to your greatness and the attributes that uh, make up your greatness can also become the seeds to your destruction. And Jamie, you're so right. My dad is a very larger than life human, um, you know, b- both in stature, he's kind of a big guy, <laughs> right? Um, but also in personality. He, I was uh, on an interview a few weeks back and somebody um, who was interviewing me kind of grew up in the same neighborhood that he grew up in. And she was a lot younger, but she said, the, the thing that makes your father so distinctive from anyone else is if he is in a location, you know as soon as you walk into the location because you hear these like bellows of laughter that just consume you, and you know you just know in your mind like that's got to be Joe Costanzo. Like nobody else <laughs> has that kind of presence. And the thing about him, and the thing that I think I've learned and absorbed so much from him is that. He just does him, right? Like he's just unapologetically him. He's real no matter what. Mm-hmm. Sometimes to a default, like sometimes I have to tell him before he he used to be um, a radio show host and a columnist. And sometimes I tell mm-hmm. him like, you got to dial back, right? <laughs> like some people, some people don't want a hundred percent of you. Like <laughs> that's where the media <laughs> training comes in on your behalf. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Like you can dial it back a little bit. Like you can be a little bit more subdued. Not everybody needs to get every everything, but I think the authenticity is what kind of wins out on that. And he is a very complicated character, right? So he certainly takes a lot of risks throughout the entire story. And the first one being is jumping into this risky restaurant business mm-hmm. in a place that it was already failing yeah. and in a place where you don't go to a fine restaurant in McKee's Rocks, Pennsylvania. You just don't. You don't go to Pittsburgh and you don't have McKee's Rocks, Pennsylvania on your bucket list of places to visit. You might drive through it mm. to get to downtown Pittsburgh, but you're not stopping. It's not a tourist destination. So, and I think the most interesting piece about his personality and how he was able to leverage it is you have to also keep in mind that this was during the 80s and 90s. And so what that meant is, you know, what we're doing right now, that wasn't happening in the 80s and 90s, right? Everything in the restaurant there was a pay phone. And then, you know, we did have a a business phone, a landline that people could call. But there was no answering machines or, you know, you could hire an answering service. I don't think many people really did that, right? (laughs) But in order for things to become as great as they were, he had to bring that greatness because the fact that celebrities were coming to our restaurant on a regular basis and the fact that our restaurant got named one of America's top 10 Italian restaurants in in the country – and he was named America's top 10 restaurant tour, you had to really be bringing it in the area that we were in because mm-hmm. it wasn't logical. It wasn't, you yeah. know, and not to downplay, there are some fantastic restaurants. I live outside of New York City now, right? And I lived in Los Angeles for You've seen 10 it. Plus You've years. experienced it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there are some wonderful restaurants and some wonderful restaurant tours, but what they have to their advantage is they have foot traffic. It's a tourist area. It's heavily populated. They have a, a tremendous amount of celebrities, columnists, journalists, broadcasters, that those places are their local neighborhood spots. Mm-hmm. We didn't have any of that. 
<laughs> we just had a space and we had some really authentic food thanks to my grandma. Um, but everything else needed to be created and that story needed to travel. And so, you know, my point is, is his character really helped to build the empire that the restaurant became. And I think mm -hmm. without that, I don't think he would have been as successful. I just don't, no matter how yeah. good the food was, you know, it's, it's really a marketing machine, Absolutely. right? Like, yeah. Yeah. So I want to ask you, of course, how you leverage that and how you make your way into the, the front facing part of the industry. But the, I really want to remain with this aspect of your father and how you made this choice in the, in the book to make him the protagonist, because very easily you could have been, this is my dad's story, or this is my story. And I'm going to be sharing a little bit of tidbits from his life and things like that. But you, you've done something very interesting. And I'm curious why you made that choice. I mean, uh, alongside all the things that we've spoken about that, that clearly justified to some degree, but I think I'd like to know when specifically you made that choice and, and what made you really go all in on that, because that's a big one. I mean, to, to have oh him gosh, be the pro yeah. protagonist of that story. Jamie, that is such an excellent question. And that's something, that's the reason why it took 17 years <laughs> to, to write this thing, right? Yeah. I really struggled um, because you're right. I Everybody's got their own room with a view, right? So he's got his story from his perspective. I've got my story from my perspective. And, you know, there is some overlap there. Originally, how I had envisioned the book was it was going to be maybe a chapter from his perspective and a chapter from my perspective, then mm. back to his perspective, vice versa, right? But I was fortunate enough. Um, I had, I, you know, really, I know that's teacher appreciation week uh, that's coming up. And I am so grateful for, for all of our teachers out there. Thank you for all that you do. And you're, you yes. are really making a difference. Um, because my own high school teacher I was blessed enough to bring her onto the project. Uh, mm. So Ruthie Robbins uh, was my English teacher starting in the sixth grade and uh, finishing with AP English uh, my senior year of high school. And the interesting piece about her is she's from McKees Rocks, grew up, born and raised in McKees Rocks. So she knew this town back in the 50s and 60s when it was booming and bustling. Mm. She also knew my family very intimately because I was her student for so many years. And also her oldest son was a great friend of mine and still is. He's a, it was a year older than me in school. So she knew our family personally that way. Mm -hmm. She was also a customer at the restaurant. So she got to experience the business side of my dad whenever she walked in through the doors because that was the place, that was her spot. You know, that was where she celebrated all of her wins throughout life. And so she and I always kept in touch, but mm -hmm. after college, I had moved to Los Angeles and so did her son. So whenever she would come to visit, I would also see her too, mm -hmm. you know, because we we're yeah. all like one, one family, one community, you know, like just an extension. I always say, if you be friends with me over 20 years, you're just family. Like, no longer, there's no more friends, you know, <laughs> just, <laughs> I consider you my blood at that point. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, we're not, we're not doing this anymore. But whenever she would come to visit, she knew about the project and she knew that I was working on it. Um, and she asked one time, like, where is this? And I said, well, it, you know, it's a mess. It's a holy hot mess. I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> and at the time she had moved to Buffalo and she was editing books for a writer's group in Buffalo, New York. And she said, you know, how about this? Can I take some of your vignettes? Because at that point, that's all it really was, was just your stories. Because this, I, at first, I had never intended for this to be a commercialized book. I thought it was going to be a family history. And I was trying to get my dad back on track mm -hmm. after, you know, so many huge blows had sort of happened to our family. So I'd say things like, tell me a story about a really interesting thing that happened mm -hmm. at the restaurant on a Saturday night, go. <laughs> and yeah, then yeah. I would press record on my like little um, tape recorder. And, and that's how the book kind of started. And so she took the vignettes to her writing group and 
the thing that they all agreed was it needs a lot of work, right? But it also has an immense amount of potential. Mm -hmm. And whenever they looked at the two perspectives side by side, his voice was so much stronger. Like I said, whenever I painted that picture in the beginning, (laughs) if he's in a room, it's undeniable. You know that he's there, right? So his voice was really screaming through the pages where mine was a little bit more introspective and kind of being drowned out. So we decided at that point that we were going to switch everything to his voice. Mm -hmm. So it's actually, it's a very different project um, because it's two females, both my co-author, Ruthie Robbins, and myself, and we write as a male. We write as him. Mm -hmm. So. Um, my agent always forgets that we that she represents two females <laughs> because she it, the, she you know said whenever she was trying to figure out if she's going to take the project on or not she said I've never seen two co-writers just write so well together and I've also not really seen you know two co-writers that are female write as a male and it's kind of undeniable that that's who you are throughout the story. Like you guys stay completely in character. And, you know, if the funny thing is, is if you know me and you know him, we do have a lot of similar attributes in our personality, but we make very different choices. (laughs) Like I'm (laughs) very type A, I am very planned, you know, this is what we're doing for the next couple of weeks. I got it all lined up. Like (laughs) my dad is just, Hey, whatever, like, you know, go Go with the the flow, flow. let the papers fly, they land where they are. And then we just gonna, we're just gonna follow that energy. Right. So, um, it was very fun because it was in a way as we were writing this, I got to be in my head and I got to keep on saying like, you know, instead of what would Jesus do? It was like <laughs> W what would, what would Joe do? What would Joe Costanzo do? You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, like how would he react to this situation? Oh yeah. He'd probably swear or, <laughs> okay, you know, he'd probably, eat a piece of tiramisu yeah. or like whatever it was, right. I got to sort of live life through him, which was super fun. I mean, it was being somebody that's totally different than yourself and writing as them. I can see why fiction writers really get into their characters because it's, mm-hmm. you know, constantly I would dream about being you know, Joe Costanzo (laughs) breaking up fights and, you know, winning all these like fantastic awards and, you know, meeting all these celebrities, like that became my life for a very long time. Um, So it was, it was cool. So that's how we chose to go with his perspective. So I'm curious of this because you, you just reminded me of something I wanted to ask you is the idea of, of reconciling certain things in life. Uh, I know that even though this was something that was successful for a very long time, I wonder, and you mentioned this earlier too, how it impacts the way that you view your responsibilities in, in life and to your family. You know, there's, there's a huge commitment there, of course, but also if there's any kind of resentments that you feel that were overcome by the writing of this book, did you get emotional in that respect about writing it? Or do you feel like there was never any kind of resentment that was held over from from childhood or from those early moments in life? Yeah, I wouldn't say that I felt any resentment. Um, I would say that whenever things sort of spiraled downward, unfortunately, I was kind of the catalyst of all of it because Mm. whenever the federal government came to look for him and tell him that he was a part of a grand jury investigation, which meant that somebody... Um, who was being summoned by a grand jury mentioned his name as somebody who was potentially doing something wrong. And automatically that's a criminal case and a criminal investigation. It's pretty heavy. Mm -hmm. So whenever that happened, I was 20 years old and I was in between jobs. Um, You know, I was I think lifeguarding during the day and working at the restaurant at night. So I think I was like changing, you know, and getting ready to go to the restaurant. And all of a sudden the federal government knocks on my door and they're looking for my dad. And it sidelined all of us. I mean, we were not 
expecting it whatsoever. We were, and through the whole thing, um, and even now, we continue to remain very good people. And, um, you know, essentially something very bad happened to us. And so we went from being kind of the, the top of the top to the lowest of the low. And I would say that at that point, I was having a lot of trouble uh, with my mental health um, and just reconciling my own mental health around this mm-hmm. because I had never, I mean, I don't think going through a investigation um, of your parent and then eventually them being incarcerated, that's like not a normal childhood thing to go through and there's no rule book on it. So for me, um, I just had so many emotions over it, so much anxiety over it. Um, I actually left and I, as soon as I graduated from college, I packed up my bags. I went 3,000 miles away to Los Angeles and hoped that my problems wouldn't follow me. But, you know, what happens with problems is they find a way to sneak into your carry-on, you mm-hmm. know? And um, it doesn't matter if you're showing up in Los Angeles or China or, you know, you're yeah. staying at home, they're still going to be with, there with you. And so... It really took me a lot of time to heal. I was in this um, emotional state of just intense anxiety and panic and very small things. Like, you know, here's an example. Um, If I would go to a restaurant, right? Mm -hmm. And like, I'm so passionate about restaurants. I love food. This is like how we celebrate. I mean, it's just a very big part of my life and my culture. If I would go to a restaurant and people would hand me a menu that was miles long and then they would start spouting off specials, it was so overwhelming for me. I would just run out. Like I couldn't take it. I couldn't make any more decisions on my own. It was just all consuming for me. And it really took, um, you know, God bless my husband, who was then my boyfriend and, you know, a pretty new boyfriend at the time. Um, he stood by me through all of this and he just found ways to try to have me heal on my own. And um, one of the most beautiful things that he ever did for me, um, we were kind of shopping for a place to uh, go to church whenever we lived in Los Angeles. And um, I'm a former Catholic and for a lot of reasons, I didn't necessarily want to go down that that train. And he's Episcopalian, so I said, "All right, that's like Catholic light. I can I can do that. I can hang." Yeah, right? That's a solid compromise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so there was this nun that was supposed to be speaking at this church that he was kind of interested in visiting, and so he said, "I think you should go. There's a Catholic nun that's coming," and I'm kind of like rolling my eyes because, eh, what am I want with a Catholic nun, right? But he said, you know, she started this organization called Get on the Bus, and they take children to visit their parents in prison for Mother's Day at the time. And now it's actually Mother's and Father's Day. So I said, eh, okay, you know, if you really want me to go, I will go. And what I found, you know, I'm used to like the East Coast nuns. They got habits. They got (laughs) rulers. Like, they're serious, right? (laughs) I don't know if it's just West Coast nuns or the just this nun in general. She was literally my father in a female version. She <laughs> just like <laughs> came in, like no apologies. She was all flashy, like nails matched her toes. She was in wedge uh, heels, very like classy woman, just sort of like sashayed as she walked to the podium (laughs) and just, I'm going to tell you how it is right now. And you're going to listen to me. And this is how I started the organization. You know, parents are, the mothers started telling me they'd never seen their kids for four to 12 years. And I'm like, let's just get a bus. (laughs) And she's like, And that's how it all started. And she said, the diocese was on top of me. You can't do this for insurance reasons, for this reason. And she goes, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get myself a bus. And I'm going to take these people to go see their parents. And that's what I'm going to do. Amen. Goodbye. And so I was so moved by her passion. It was um, equivalent to my dad's passion, mm-hmm. right? And so after her speech, I came up to her and I just said, hey, you know, I 
just want to introduce myself. I was really moved by your presentation. I have no idea what children of incarcerated parents um, are going through, especially young children and the families, but I have a little idea of what a traumatic event can do um, and how that can kind of be very disruptive um, to somebody. And, you know, this is a little bit of my story. And she looked at me and she goes, oh my gosh, like you are the perfect person. Like, I can't believe that you were sent here today Mm -hmm. to talk to me. And she said, you know, I love it because I could send you to South Central and you could relate to all of those folks, but I could also send you to Beverly Hills and people aren't going to be scared of you. (laughs) She's like, you know, you, yeah, yeah, she's (laughs) like, you got that way about you. And she said, would you ever consider telling your story? And at that point, there was a lot of, um, I'm not going to say shame of my family because that's not right. It was just like shame of myself. You know, I was just holding so much in and bottling so much up. I was actually destroying my own self through my emotions. And, you know, I said, I'm not, not really sure. Um, but I'll take your card. And so whenever I had spoken with my boyfriend, um, now husband, he said, you know, I think you should do this. I think it'd be really great for you. And so we started taking the show on the road and I would go to um, preach homilies all throughout the state of California mm. with this nun and tell my own story. And we would pass the basket around and collect like lots and lots of money for on behalf of the organization and started to make me feel like I had a purpose and make me feel good because I was doing something good mm. with something really bad that happened to me. Um, so that was kind of helping me a little bit. And then one day the director up and quit. And so I'll never forget this. We were at a gas station and we're sitting there and, you know, total Suzanne fashion. That's my, my nun sister, Suzanne (laughs) Jabro. She's sitting there and she goes, Oh, the director quit today. I'm like, Suzanne, like, why are you not flipping out? Like, this is like a big deal. This Mm. is a statewide organization. It's a couple of months till the event. She goes, oh, no, I got it. I know. I got somebody else in mind for the job. (laughs) And I said, oh, that's great. Um, Who? And she goes, you. I said, what? (laughs) No, 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 no. Like, I'm just out of college. I, you know, don't know anything like this is a very big job running this nonprofit that's not just in North Hollywood, California. This is like throughout the state. There's thousands of volunteers. There's several prisons. There's a Mother's Day and a Father's Day now. Like I've never really worked with the Department of Corrections. I like I don't have any experience like, no, this is not the position for me. And I think what started to change my mindset is her undeniable belief in me. And she just said, I hope I don't get emotional right now, but she just said, Maria, you are the person like you can do this. I believe so much in you and I know that you can do this and I need you to do this because I need you to be able to do this for the families that are counting on all of us. And when she said that, I'm like, I don't know how to say so, no to yeah. this. How can you like, say no to that? Yeah. Right. I, I'm like, and this is a nun. I think it's like sacrilegious if I tell a nun no. Like, so <laughs> I said, all right, I'll do it. But, you know, I, I don't really know. And that was the best yes I've ever made in my life because I thought I was going to be coming in and I was going to be helping all these families reunite with their parents and their loved ones. and yeah, that happened to a degree, right? Like mostly through my volunteers. I had very little to do with that part other than I was coordinating and telling people, you got to do this now, you got to do this now. But what really happened and really flipped the game for me is the families that I was dealing with, they started to teach me, and now I will get emotional. They started to teach me things about unconditional love and um sorry, and how not to feel shame and how to embrace your story and yourself and how to walk proud and how to love. (laughs) And those moments, um, they were, they changed my life. They changed the 
trajectory of my career and what I decided to do. Um, I, you know, from then on went into the nonprofit world. I'm still there right now. In addition to being a writer, um, I'm a grant writer for mm. a nonprofit here in New Jersey, in Patterson, New Jersey, called St. Paul's Community Development Corporation. And I just love that every day I'm getting to make a very small difference in somebody else's life for the better, whether it's, you know, helping to find some funding for our food pantry programs or helping um, men who are kind of transitioning into the real world again after being homeless into our shelter program or helping people get skills so mm -hmm. that they can get better jobs and education or helping families that are just kind of coming from different countries to get acclimated to the school system here mm -hmm. and to have primary care and mental health care for their entire families. Like these are the types of things that we're doing now. And these are the types of things that just mean so much to me. And so I would say that that was the game changer. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, you were asking about perspective in the last question, right? And so that's my next, my next project is actually the perspective that we threw out all of my voice. That's my next project. It starts that's great from to the hear. moment that the federal government knocks on my door and, and how I got myself um, back to mm -hmm. who I am today and how I found purpose and how I found strength and how I was able to, to trudge through a situation that really almost um, unfolded in like a kind of catastrophic way because mm -hmm. I was just going off the edge. I was spiraling downhill so quickly. And right. um, to know that I was able to get help in, in the most unlikely of places is <laughs> um, <laughs> fantastic. And so, the, yeah, yeah. That, that is a story in and of itself as well. But And first of all, thank you so much for, for sharing that because it provides so much context for why you're going about the things that you're doing and 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 how these things are coming together. But I couple, I got a couple more questions to be mindful of your time here. This has sure. been wonderful. And, and I feel like you, because of that beautiful media training, you're covering all these questions so well that I'm, I'm going to keep it to just a couple more. Um, <laughs> oh, but, <laughs> anything you want. I'm, I'm yours for as long as you would like, honestly. So I, I appreciate I've it. i this time out specifically <laughs> for you. So don't so, feel bad at all. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So let's talk about, Coming back to this idea of mentorship in particular in the artistic aspect of this, and if we could kind of get down to some of the hardships of writing the work and being in that collaboration, because it seems like it was custom made, tailor made to have this collaboration happen because your collaborator knows the world and knows the individual and there's so many pieces coming together, but can you share a story or maybe a moment when you two were at odds with a problem in the work? that just, you know, maybe those perspectives weren't gelling as well as they normally did? Um, you know, that's really hard to do because we work so well together. And I think part of it is we complement each other with our strengths, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this whole um, prophecy that there can be too many cooks in a kitchen, right? And I would say that the things that I excel in she doesn't necessarily excel in. Mm. And the things that she excels in, I do not necessarily excel in. So the example of that, and I think, you know, um, I don't know if, if frustration is the right term. I have never been frustrated with the situation. I've felt blessed, you know, through um, the partnership completely. And I think also, and I can't really completely speak from her perspective, but one of the things that we talk about all the time is our purpose in it. And for both of us, our purpose is not to get rich or famous, or it's really to put this passion project through for my family. And that's why she hopped onto the project. And that's why I continue mm -hmm. to uh, you know, move the project forward. So I would say... Not that there was any frustration at all between the two of us. I just think that there was frustration in the process um, because the publishing world is very ambiguous. And unless you are a celebrity or somebody that can kind of guarantee 
millions of dollars of sales, people are automatically going to write you off, um, especially in the area of narrative nonfiction, Mm -hmm. right? Because with fiction, you can be an excellent writer and sometimes that writing can carry into the masses. For nonfiction, they really want you to have a platform and they really want you to bring the audience also to them. Mm -hmm. And so I think the frustration piece was that um, the publishing world can be a little closed off if you don't really know the ins and outs. And for me, keep in mind, I'm a grant writer, right? So I like checking boxes, (laughs) like this is done, this is done, this is done. Now this is the next step. As a writer, everybody's, you have a different path than I have, and I have a different path than, you know, the person that's listening to this. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any path right or wrong or anything. It's just the way that things kind of work organically in Mm -hmm. the publishing world. So for me, it was really hard to figure out. I knew what I didn't know, and I always said, you, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Um, and I embraced that, but it was hard to get a lot of answers. There was a lot of digging that had to happen for me. And I think the timeline became the most frustrating piece because we weren't ready for how much time this was all going to take, both in the workload, but also just in the process. But, you know, I made some very crucial errors very early on, which I'm happy to share. And one of which being that um, we had sort of finished the manuscript in the summer of 2020. And then we had eight beta readers kind of take it and pull it apart. And um, we were doing rewrites and everything through the fall. Um, There was one agent in particular, because my husband used to work in Hollywood whenever we lived in California. And there was one agent in particular that he knew here in New York City that he had a relationship with. And so he contacted on our behalf and the guy was like, oh yeah, all in on this. Like, please send me the full manuscript. Well, we weren't ready for the full manuscript and um, it it cost us. Mm -hmm. We ended up getting rejected over it because we sent what we had and it was in decent shape, but not... Um, completely polished like it needs Mm -hmm. to be. And once you get rejected on a project, which I was not aware of, you can't go back to that agent with that project. It has to be a new project. So, you know, I kind of shot myself in the foot early and that was a frustration. I think also the querying process um, was a big frustration for both Ruthie and I because Whenever we got feedback, a lot of times it was just ghosting, right? Like I think we sent mm-hmm. out close to 265 queries, which is wow. like a ridiculous amount, right? Yeah. 108 people never even responded to us. And some of these people in their guidelines, they wanted a query letter. They wanted our full manuscript, which I think was about 90,000 words at that that point. They wanted a book proposal, and our book proposal with the sample chapters was about 60 pages. And then they wanted, you know, any kind of other supporting evidence mm-hmm. about our social media and everything. And so we would send them everything, and we didn't even get a thanks so much, you know, we received <laughs> this, or like a thanks but no thanks. Yeah. We just get nothing. Wow. And so I think the timeline was kind of the hardest, and I think that it did spiral me into a very self-conscious place because, you know, you Mm. start getting in your head, right? And you start thinking, are they not responding because this is no good? Or like, am I just a nobody? Am I not getting through? Does this just not work in some, like, because you get just nothing back. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and also nobody can tell you when things are going to happen. You know, I mean, the, I, kept on telling you every six months, yeah, I want to be on your show, but not yet. (laughs) (laughs) You got to play the long game. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You got to play the long game. And that long game is really frustrating for somebody like me who's very planned. And I think, you know, Ruthie too, she's still a teacher. Mm. So I think her frustration, and again, I can't speak a hundred percent for her, but I think also the balance of everything, um, her commitment to the school. And then whenever things would pop up, 
you know, like all Mm -hmm. of a sudden we have a full request and we need this and this and this and this. It's like, then she would be pulling an all nighter to help get all of this stuff together. Oh goodness. And so I think that that was frustrating, but I wouldn't say that there was frustration or any animosity whatsoever between the two of us. Actually, we, we talked about at some point, you know, writing a joint article about how to co-author um, yeah. together because yeah. I, I really do feel like we we kind of have the dream team, yeah. you know. Um, there's well, let me just interrupt you there real quick. If you yeah. ever want to chat, if you and Ruthie ever want to come and talk to me about it, I'd be happy to do sure. that because uh, I think it's beneficial to share yeah. with people uh, how to properly have a good partnership in terms of yeah. what you're doing creatively, but how to support each other through that process. You know, outside let's of the do writing. it. Let's yeah, do it. Let's anytime. find, you know, after this, certainly email me and I can connect you yeah. with Ruthie too. And let's get that on our calendar. Cause I think that that would be an important discussion for yeah. writers. So I know? think we, we have a lot to talk about yet <laughs> and we just scratched the surface. <laughs> <laughs> I know, so right? Let's yeah. Let's Multiple schedule shows. it for, for round two. Um, but sure, let's do it. I got, be happy to. I got one more here for you because I, I think yeah. that you're kind of, uh, wrapping it up for me in such a beautiful way that I want to, I want to inquire about if your family had veto power in the script, that's question number one. And the number two, we can talk about (laughs) some, some final thoughts here, but let's go with that one first. Um, yes and no, you know, it, it took 17 years to write, right. Um, and it took, a long time to get my dad to the point where we were telling everything um, because, and I, I do not fault him. I think that every single person would feel the same way about this. It is very easy to say, look at me, look at all these good things that I've done. Look at all these awards that I've won. Look at all the celebrities that I have, you know, pictured on my wall that love me. Look at all of these things that I've achieved in my life. It is very hard to be humbly and brutally honest about the things that have happened in your life that you'd rather forget, right? That you'd rather say, yeah, I kind of want to have a redo of that day. (laughs) Or maybe I didn't show my best self at this time. Or maybe... XYZ got the best of me and, you know, my anger or arrogance or whatever got out of control. And so having Ruthie was invaluable because she was a third party element, right? Mm -hmm. And it took several years for us to get to the point where my dad was sort of okay telling the story. It was great telling the rise, right? We're all great (laughs) telling the rise. But whenever it came to the fall, it it was a hard story to tell because he was losing much more than a place of business. He was losing his life, his freedom, and something that gave him utter joy and purpose in life. Like he loved his customers. He loved being a part of people's experience. Um, whenever they walked through the doors, it was mm-hmm. like similar to a Broadway show, you know, just yeah. choreographed just <laughs> right. Um, and he loved that. And he really you know, relish in all of it. So as far as veto power, once he understood, and I think that Ruthie did this so beautifully, um, here in, you know, 2023, nothing is secretive, right? So you can go right now and you can Google Maria C. Palmer and there'll be a lot of things that pop up and you can go and you can Google Joseph Costanzo Jr. And there'll be a lot of things that pop up, right? And So part of what's going to pop up is that he got in trouble and he got in trouble for tax evasion. And that is public record. And it was a federal offense that he Mm -hmm. pled guilty to. Um, And to be quite honest, right now, he would not have went to prison because there were at that time, there were these mandatory minimum um, limits and um, guidelines that the federal judges had to follow. So mm-hmm. if you did X, Y, Z, it was like a grid system. So they had no um, choice but to give him time in prison. Now those are deemed unconstitutional. So I think that if he went back to trial and actually didn't plead guilty, pled, you know, not guilty, or maybe even pled guilty, I think, you know, perhaps there would have just been a fine and mm-hmm. not a prison sentence that followed. But 
whenever we told him that, hey, listen, like none of this is a secret and, you know, look at, I don't know if you are familiar, years ago, uh, Oprah had recommended James Fry's book, A Million Little Pieces. Mm -hmm. And it's a great book. I don't, if anybody's not read it, it's really, really good. It talks about his struggle with addiction, but within the book, he does exaggerate certain pieces that did not necessarily happen. Mm. And guess what? All of that was made public. And instead of having all of this fame and all of this wonder around him, people started to say things like, he's not real. He's not authentic. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not telling the whole side of the story. And so whenever we explain this to my dad, that everybody can look it up if they want to anyways, you're in a position where you take your own pen and you take your own microphone and you tell your own story from your own perspective. You can tell people why this happened. Mm -hmm. There's no shame that it happened. Tell them why it happened. Mm -hmm. And once we were able to lay that down, he was an open book. And whenever I say an open book, the things that you will find in my story, there's a reason why Hollywood is all about it right now. Mm -hmm. Like, There's so much action. I mean, I'm not going to ruin it for you, but there's like any kind of major thing that you could think it's in there. We got celebrities, you know, we've got incarceration. We got like everything, all of like this crazy chaos that, you know, turns (laughs) into this beautiful story. We have it in there. And I think that that's what makes the story so rich and so believable is he's not shying away from any part of it. So, you know, people are curious because one day we had this great business in McKee's Rocks and then the next day we didn't. (laughs) And so this sort of fills in the gaps of like, what the hell happened? Right. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to like swear on air, but. Oh, you're fine. (laughs) Like, where did this go? You know, let's just tell the honest account. And I think that because of that, he really didn't veto anything. You know, mm-hmm. he was more or less an open book with everything and he sort of trusted our judgment. Now, you know, that being said, um, we are an open book with our own family, but um, for people that we felt that we needed to protect identities mm-hmm. and names and things like that, of, of course, those have been protected. And, you know, the, um, the the crux of the story stays together, but you know we worry more about that you know reputation, and we don't want to do any sort of like false libel or anything like that. But yeah. what's in there is is a hundred percent all us, and he's very honest, and um, it's it's actually funny at times because you're like, <laughs> like what a, what have you gotten yourself into any more crazy right yeah, <laughs> and yeah. then it does <laughs> you know and i gotta tell you uh just reading the setup was was enough for me to feel like wow this is this is going to be just a remarkable journey that you're going to take us on and to believe that and and Folks might find it hard to believe, you know, but this is something that was certainly uh, a huge occurrence in your life. But I think that I'm going to ask you one more. okay? Uh, because I think this is this is just wonderful. Can you can you share a few things about about the act of writing and what it's done for your quality of life, for your family and, and the kinds of things that we're talking about, just so that we can wrap up on a good note here? I think that would be useful for the listener. Absolutely. So, you know, um, one of the things about this particular story is that I didn't want, you know, we we all come to this final crescendo in life, right? And my dad's getting older. He'll be 70 right before the book comes out. Um, He's 70 on August 3rd. The book comes out on August 8th. And, you know, he, for having such a wonderful ride in life, he really had this very sharp downward spiral and that's kind of how things ended. And while things were ending, his health really took a hit as well. He's been a diabetic since he was in his early thirties and, um, had some substantial heart problems, had to have open heart surgery, his Mm -hmm. kidneys failed. So he's had not 
one but two kidney transplants and lots mm. of health um, situations that have sort of emerged from that. So my point is, is his quality of life um, and it's been tough. It's been really, really tough. He's now, you know, mostly blind. Um, but this book has sort of given him a reason to live. And, mm -hmm. you know, I tell people during his second kidney transplant, um, something went incredibly wrong and he was actually allergic to the kidney starter medication, but oh. his a lot of times when you have a really bad allergic reaction, it's the second time you have something. So, you know, your body doesn't really know what it is the first time, but as mm -hmm. soon as it comes into your body the second time, it's like, oh yeah, I recognize that. I don't like that. <laughs> like yeah. now bad things will happen. So he, he was in an induced coma for a week. Um, oh goodness. And during that week, and this was like right before we were taking the manuscript to shop to agents and, um, my mom, my sister, and I would take turns at his hospital bed, holding his hand and reading the manuscript. And the nurses, you know, as they were kind of monitoring him and everything, just said that, like, it was actually keeping him alive, you know, like wow. he was like squeezing our hands and just, you know, giving him this spark. And it's been so gratifying to hear him say things like, I haven't been this excited whenever he listens to interviews like this, right? Mm -hmm. He says things like, I haven't been this excited since I got this huge review that started me off in like <laughs> 1988, right? And so it's kind of in a in a way given him this purpose for life. And that's kind of what my writing has become. I've sort of used um my skills or lack thereof, like my passion, right, to try to not only better his life, but in my professional career, to tell the stories of the people that we impact in Patterson, New Jersey, who are food insecure, mm -hmm. who are homeless, who are without families, who are without any sort of support network, and to be able to use my writing to get those resources into their hands. I mean, <laughs> how lucky, how lucky am I? Like, I really kind of consider myself one of the luckiest people in the world because of the things that I've been bestowed to do and the things that I've been blessed with. And the fact that, you know, people have given me those opportunities and those chances and they've trusted me. It's, you know, it's very humbling to come to a table without nothing. And, you know, people are relying on me to be able to bring some money into the organization so they can get weekly groceries. I mean, that's heavy. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, you know, something that, um, even though obviously as a writer, it's like, I always joke around, you know, um, people like tell people, yes, it's my real job. You know, my family's also asked me the same question for 20 years and my bank account also asks me that like every day, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but what you get, you know, these, um, gems of just purpose and being able to really impact, uh, the way that people, think and perceive the world and, you know, to do a little bit of good just from something that kind of comes innately, like, please don't stop writing. If you're out there and you're thinking, I'm going to give this up, don't stop writing because your voice and your passion, it needs to be heard. And people want to hear it. Maybe not everybody. I always tell people your story's not for everybody, but it's certainly for somebody. But if you stop whoever that story is intended for, it's never going to get to them. So you got to keep on going. You got to keep on writing. You got to keep on trudging through those muddy waters because it's worth it. It's worth it for that one person. It's worth it for the million people that you might reach. You know, James Patterson, Stephen King, they were at one point exactly where you are right now, like ready to give up. Nobody was reading them. Nobody knew about them the difference between them and us is that they persevered and you can also persevere. And I will leave it at that. That's a beautiful note to end on inspiring, <laughs> joyful, complete. Yes. yes. Thank you so much. Amen. Maria, Thank you, Jamie. <laughs> yeah. This has been, this has been such, such an honor and such a blast to hear you share this, this beautiful, intricate, 
up and down topsy turvy story, but uh, I really want to thank you for having the humility and the strength to share that story that is that is going to be able to teach us so much. And uh, I, I just can't wait to chat with you again. I think this is yeah. this would be a wonderful opportunity to talk about collaboration too, which is something I'm very that. passionate about. But lastly, I just want to say thank you for the work that you're doing outside of your writing and the work that you're doing with your writing, because as a workforce specialist myself, you know, that's something that I did in the past. It is very vital that we continue to help the most disadvantaged in our communities. And you're doing such a wonderful job at that. And yeah, for being awesome and for taking the time to do this. This is such a blast, really inspiring. I I feel the same way. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you for <laughs> sticking with me, even though I put you off for the last two years. No, I it really was didn't want to be on your show. Hey, but, this is a lesson, know. writers. Take your time. <laughs> Good things will come. We'll have yes. wonderful episodes like this coming up. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic! Thank you so much, Jamie. Well, My pleasure. Yeah, you enjoy your Sunday, and I'll talk soon. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Okay. Goodbye. Bye.